Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Welcome back. So, um, our uh, custom is to go around and uh, just uh, say our names. Uh, if we could take a breath between um, you and the, and the person ahead of you, that would be great. So maybe you can register a little. My name is Cass. My name is Christian. My name's David. I'm Greg. My name is Michael. David. Mike. I'm Jim. Oh, uh, my name is Mariano. Don. Lewis. I'm Richard. I'm Chisholm. I'm Bob. Peter. I'm Mike. My name is Jason. My name is Stephen. I'm Mick. Ted. George. Tony. Jack. Matthew. I'm Larry. My name is Paul. I'm Charlie. My name is Roy. My name is Jeff. My name is Jerry. My name is Andres. <clears throat> My name's Cindy. <laughs> yes, we're privileged today to have Cindy as our speaker. Um, she's an author, social activist, and explorer of the unconventional. Um, some of the books that she has authored are uh, Wisdom Circle, a, a Guide of, to Self-Discovery and Community Building in Small Groups. She co-authored with uh, Charles Garfield, uh, sometimes my heart goes numb, love and caregiving in a time of AIDS. Co-edited the anthology Earthlight, Spiritual Wisdom for an, an Ecological Age. And since the mid-1990s, she has been active in local ecology in the San Francisco area. Co-founded two ecology nonprofits, Earth Team and Close to Home, as well as serving as coordinator for Earth Day 2000 for the Bay Area. Her explorations have been in the field of spirituality, transpersonal psychology, and personal growth. Her website is cindyspring.com, and today she's going to talk about her new book, The Wave and the Drop, Wisdom Stories About Death and Afterlife. Welcome, Cindy. Thank you. Thank you, Cass. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for coming here today, and I uh, want to especially thank uh, my friend uh, Jeff, who I know is Barat. And we've been friends for almost 30 years now. Uh, really appreciate this invitation to come and speak. And to my uh, dear husband, Charlie Garfield, who some of you may know as founder of Shanti Project. And uh, we've been partners for 37 years, and uh, he has been a loving support for everything I do, uh, including this book. Thank you, Charlie. I'm here to share with you my journey uh, of writing this book. 
because it really has been a journey for me. And uh, I hope that you'll find meaningful moments in my story uh, that relate to your journey as well. I'd like to uh, ask you to imagine with me what it was like on a fall day in 2009. I was sitting with my mother-in-law in in her apartment at the dining room table. We both knew that she only had months to live. She was 94 years old. And we were chatting about various things, and then out of the blue, she said to me, what do you think happens when you die? What do you think happens when you die? She had been raised uh, uh, as a Jewish, uh, in, in the Jewish, Jewish tradition, uh, but ethnically and not religiously. So she really didn't have any religious background. And now she was facing her own death. And I was the daughter-in-law, uh, the daughter that she never had. She had two sons. For 30 years, we'd been together. So there we were. And she asked me, what do you think happens when you die? And she knew that I had been a practicing Catholic uh, in my younger days, but left that religion and explored many other traditions along the way. And at that moment, I could have answered, I don't know. I'm exploring. I'm trying to figure it out myself. I don't know. But that's not the answer she needed at that time. She needed something more definite. So out of somewhere, um, out of the deep uh, soul or mind, uh, I uh, said, you know, uh, there are various wisdom traditions that have stories about um, what happens when you die, and I think each one of them has a grain of truth. When she said, well, tell me some stories. So I proceeded to tell her three stories, one of which came from the Hindu tradition, the wave and the drop. And that one is very simple and very basic. It's about a wave that crests and drops little drops into the water. And it's like our lifetimes. We're part of the ocean. We're part of a big wave. And we come down as little drops for a very short time. And then the drops go back into the ocean again. She loved that story. That was uh, her story. And when she was in hospice a few months later and um, was going in and out of a coma, she said, I'm a drop falling back into the wave. I'm a drop, falling back into the wave. And Charlie was there, you can testify. And so I got the sense of the power of that story to really help people through that kind of transition. Um, a few years later, I lost another close friend. In 2014, I lost a dear friend of 40 years. And I watched them answer that question for themselves. And the idea came to me in 2014 that what I could do was put together a small book of stories, sort of like an Aesop's Fables for the Dying Time, taken from each of the major traditions. And so that's what the wave and the drop became. And I want to share with you a few of the insights that I gained by having to really explore each of those traditions 
and find the essential message, the essential message, and I hope that I've done that in most cases, from each of those traditions and put it together in a way that it's very accessible. Uh, I use lots of stories. It isn't uh, conceptual very much. I use lots of stories from the original tradition, but also every single chapter has stories from people who are using that tradition currently, for whom that is their story. I talk to them about how it worked for them. So, writing the wave and the drop. It required courage. I didn't think about it at the time, but as I got into it, I had to find the courage to confront my own mortality. And we all think about it once in a while, but think about how you put off, you know, writing that advanced directive or the will that you have to put together or leaving your belongings to whomever, you know. It's tough. You kind of find reasons not to do it. At least that was true for me. I had to look at my own mortality at writing this book. Uh, and I also had to look at my belief system. What did I believe? What was my answer, my own personal answer to the question, what happens when you die? So this whole project became a, uh, a, an exercise in courage for me. It's also, in a way, a sketch of humankind's journey looking for answers to this question. Because through the centuries, through the millennia, we've been trying to answer that question and various people have come up with, and various texts have come up with uh, pieces of the elephant, pieces of the picture that, um, that we're trying to put together. So that was my task. So I've told you about the, um, uh, the wave and the drop, and uh, then probably the next chapter, the story of heaven, was by far the hardest chapter for me. And that was because I had grown up Catholic with 12 years of Catholic schooling and, and all that that entails, uh, and uh, I had a lot of baggage. I didn't realize I had a lot of baggage. From, I was aware of the fact that I had some antipathies. Um, for some of the messages that I got at the time. Um, but I didn't realize how deep the, the uh, baggage went because that particular approach has changed enormously over the last few decades and I didn't keep up with the changes. So I wrote um, a first draft and a second draft and didn't feel right and people said, no, this doesn't feel as good as the other chapters. There's something wrong with it. So I had to start from scratch again and talk to people who were holding uh, the Christian uh, and, or Muslim version of heaven and find out um, what was contemporary, what were they thinking. And then I was able to put together the story of heaven in a way that I hope uh, benefits all of us. Um, and I want to read you, every chapter begins with um, a story, uh, an opening story. So let me read you the story that uh, begins the chapter. And this one I got from a friend of a friend, because I kept asking people. Her name's Peggy Flynn. She lives in Milwaukee, and uh, she is a hospice worker. And this was her story. I had been at the hospital with a client for seven nights straight, a man I had not met before. 
A friend of his had called me because he knew that I did this kind of volunteer vigil keeping. The dying man was terrified, especially of dying alone. He had been too weak to talk. He just wanted to see a face whenever he opened his eyes. About four in the morning, he was struggling for each breath. I wanted it to be over as much for myself as for him. I wanted a shot of Jameson's, a hot bath, and a bed in that order. <laughs> I was standing by his bed holding his hand. Suddenly, he gripped my hand with amazing strength. His eyes opened wide, and he asked, Am I all right with God? My mind started racing with thoughts. I'm not a priest. I don't know this man's religious background. What should I say? He repeated, am I all right with God? There was a moment of absolute silence that seemed to absorb even the machine beeps and the wheezes, the mucus rattling in his throat. I felt my body in the hospital room fill with love, palpable, textured, alive. I looked into his eyes and said with a smile, you are so loved. You are so loved. His face cleared, his eyes gentled, and he died. What I learned from my Christian friends and also from reading um, current Muslim texts is that the sense of heaven is the place of the beloved community. That's a phrase that Martin Luther King Jr. popularized, and for me, that just that captures it, the beloved community. It's the place where everyone is welcome. When I was raised Catholic, we were told only Catholics went to heaven. <laughs> so the good news is now that we're all invited. Um, and I mean, that was part of the baggage I was carrying. And so um, uh, that has become uh, the touchstone for me of that particular story. Now, how many people grew up with the story of hell, which is part of the story of heaven, as an eternal damnation, a place of eternal damnation? I see a lot of hands. Okay, uh, let me tell you. Um, the good news is, hell went poof. <laughs> okay. I felt compelled to put a paragraph in, but it's a, it's a contemporary paragraph based on what I read from uh, current theologians and uh, both Christian and Muslim, because both the religions use, use the same idea of heaven pretty much. And what I came up with in my understanding is that hell is separation from God in their terms. Hell is a separation from God. You're outside that beloved community, but you put yourself there. You, by your choices uh, of behavior and thinking, put yourself outside, and that can be a hell. And hell can happen here on earth. And hell can happen on the other side. But that's only because of your choice to be separate from. And the good news is it's not eternal. Everything I've read now so far in terms of afterlife and, and uh, channeled material says there are always spirit guides and people coming to say, come on, come on, join the beloved community. You're more than welcome to join us. And eventually, most souls choose to do that. So you can only take it on faith right now. Um, I don't have a, uh, an authentic story of that. But I, uh, I do um, want to say that my book came out on March 21st, 
this year, 2018. One week later, March 28th, Pope Francis came out and said, there is no hell. <laughs> One week later, I spooked him by a week. <laughs> got lots more media coverage. <laughs> uh, another story from The Wave and the Drop is the story of reincarnation. This is my Buddhist chapter, uh, that we have not one but many lifetimes to hone our consciousness and to, and to evolve toward the one. Now, I know that not all Buddhist traditions um, hold to reincarnation. Uh, but the one that I chose, um, uh, especially the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which I used, uh, is uh, is definitely the the kind of uh, the basic Bible for reincarnation. I opened that um, chapter with the story of Aldous Huxley. Many people know who Aldous Huxley is. Yeah, uh, one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century. Uh, wrote Brave New World and many many other. Um, novels and uh, works of nonfiction. My favorite is something called the perennial philosophy, which he attempted uh, to take all of the spiritual traditions on the planet, east and west, and find the common ground for all of them um, in, in its tome. Um, but it's well worth the read. And uh, so for me, he's a, just a, a giant figure. So what tradition, knowing all the traditions, that he uh, covered. Um, what tradition did he choose for his dying time? He chose the Buddhist tradition, and he chose uh, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. His wife, Laura Huxley, read to him from the book and coached him through the tunnel, which is what the, um, the Tibetan Buddhists call it. And she says, you're doing beautifully. You're doing beautifully, darling. You're moving through the tunnel. Look at the white light. You're moving toward the white light. And she coached him through um, that whole dying period until he passed on. He died on November 22nd, 1963. Mm -hmm. Do you, anybody know who else died that day? Yes. Kennedy, right. John F. Kennedy. So his obituaries got obliterated, uh, which maybe he preferred it that way, I don't know. But um, the same day that Kennedy got shot. Uh, and he moved on, and his choice, knowing all the religions and the depth that he knew, he chose uh, the Tibetan Buddhist um, way to go. Um, there's also beings of light that supposedly meet you on your way, and that same idea comes uh, from stories of near-death experience. There are hundreds, thousands of uh, near-death experience stories that have been chronicled, that have been collected in uh, books. Uh, individuals write their own story. Uh, the one that I chose to open my chapter with is called Proof of Heaven by Eben Alexander. It's a bestseller in 2013, uh, where he was a neurosurgeon in a coma and then actually died um, or was declared dead and talks about this incredibly beautiful place. Everybody calls it ineffable, so any words that we try and use are, are really run short of what it is, but of, of incredible beauty and color and love. And he went there, and he thought this was it, that he had crossed over, and you know, he was told that his uh, work was not complete. 
and he had to come back. And that's what all of the people who experience near-death experiences, you know, from uh, trauma in an accident or from um, uh, surgery, dying on a surgery uh, table, uh, come back and they say, I came back. I was told my work isn't finished. Well, Evan Alexander came back and wrote A Million Bestseller that opens that whole idea of what heaven is um, for many millions of people. Um, the other part of that chapter, which I also find intriguing, is uh, the uh, studies that have been done at the University of Virginia, first by a man named Ian Stevenson and then followed up by a man named Jim Tucker. And they have over 2,500 cases of children remembering past lives and telling their parents, I remember when I you know, was a fighter pilot. I remember, in the one story I chose to use, I remember when I was a movie star in, the, in movies. And, he, and, was, and in the middle of the night, this little kid would say, lights, camera, action. <laughs> mother said, where did you ever get that from? And so she got books out of the library, and she um, uh, helped him. His name was Ryan. Um, we went through books, and then one day they saw a picture, and he said, that's me. That's who I am. And he talked about having three sons, have a swimming pool in Los Angeles. They were in Oklahoma. Um, and so he, um, she got in touch with Jim Tucker because she had heard that he studied kids who could identify past lives in a lot of detail. Sure enough, Jim was able to find a film archivist who would figured out who that was because he wasn't credited. He had such a small part in the movie. Um, and they went to Los Angeles and met the man's daughter. And the mother and, the, and Ryan went. And Jim Tucker set up, set it up, and uh, they verified a whole lot of the details that Ryan said uh, were true, including the names of the kids, um, some details that the daughter didn't know about about her father. Ryan hid behind his mother. He didn't want to talk to the woman at all, and when they left, he was done. He didn't want to. Um, deal with that anymore. And what uh, Dr. Tucker said was that that's so common. When kids are actually um, presented with um, somebody from this other life who may be still living, they decide, no, I'm going to stick here. I'm gonna, this is my life and I'm going to stick with it. And they let go of all mm -hmm. of that mm -hmm. older stuff. Because they can see that they can't, you know, they're not living now in this present time. And so they choose to move in, that, in the direction of being here now. Um, and there are hundreds and hundreds of stories that have been followed up uh, of kids who know um, details that they couldn't possibly know about people in other countries and other lives. And um, one of the most astounding things is that occasionally, um, if the person died from a, a war wound or you know, getting hung or whatever in some other lifetime, um, they have the scar from it. <laughs> the child has the scar from it. So, go figure. Uh, you know, there's just a lot more going on than we uh, can appreciate. <laughs> and again, there is, there's the whole NDE chapter going on in that. Uh, the story of the circle. The story of the circle, one of my personal favorites because I was following a path through nature for um, a number of years. And that's given to the variety of stories that come from indigenous people. And indigenous people often have their own versions of all of that, but the thing that's most 
uh, basic uh, is the circle, is the seasons, is the cycle, is the moon cycles, the sun cycles, all of that um, is part of every indigenous um, story. So here's the opening um, poem that I used for that chapter. Not for me steel coffins, nor even a pine wood box. Lay me out in the wilderness and let me return to earth. Tear my flesh, coyote, and I will run with you over the plains. Take my eyes, eagle, and I will soar with you in the mountains. Pick my bones clean, little beetles, and I will flow back into the life stream to think like a mountain and sink like a river. It's a poem from a, a native woman in Nova Scotia um, that I discovered, Mary de la Vallette, and I wrote to her and she gave me permission to use it. It not only underscores the cycles thing, but it also underscores that sense of belonging to a larger um, cosmology, that all beings are connected. Everything is connected. What am I doing here? What I plan to do, oh, I need to move ahead. Okay. What I plan to do is talk for about a half hour and then do uh, some Q&A. There is a chapter on self-deliverance. Um, which uh, is another term for suicide, another term for death with dignity, another term for right to life. Uh, I open that chapter by saying uh, this chapter may not be for you. If you believe that thou shalt not kill includes yourself, then uh, this chapter is not for you. But uh, two dozen legislatures in this country are considering that. We do have the right to um, die in California, um, thanks to a ballot initiative, and uh, Jerry Brown. And uh, of course, Oregon was the first state in the country to pioneer that in the early 90s. And ironically, I tell the story in that chapter of uh, Peter Goodwin, who was the doctor that pioneered the law and, and fought with the legislature and got enough support and finally made it happen and at the end of his life he got a very serious debilitating disease and needed to use the law himself. So it's almost like he set up the whole thing for himself. One of the hardest stories to tell was the story of transformation. I wanted to include it because it shows up in different ways in um, the different traditions. Um, and uh, here's the opening story as told by me. This is a personal account. I start with quoting my friend. I've seen a seven-foot-tall angel, all-white angel, standing in the hallway a couple times this week. I think the angel is here to take me home. I was in conversation with my friend of 40 years the week before he died of lung disease. He told me that the angel had been as present as I was that day. We were sitting in his office and I could see the computer screen over his shoulder. Emails were pouring in from his friends, sending him love and healing energy. Everybody knew when he knew it was pretty close. I asked him if he wanted to talk about dying and he shook his head no. A few days later, his wife called me after he died and invited me to spend some time with his body. It had only been a couple of hours. Maybe his spirit was still present <coughs> in the room. I asked him if he had anything to tell me. He'd been a jazz musician all his life. I suddenly looked up at the ceiling, and from a corner, 
I distinctly heard when the saints go marching in. It sounded like it was coming from an old time radio. Several months later, that was the theme song at his memorial service, attended by hundreds of people. I told his wife Diane that I'd heard that, and uh, Yoshi's had a wonderful memorial service for him. That was in uh, 2014. So the story of transformation can be found in many of the wisdom traditions. It's the moment when the drop starts falling back into the way. You're going back into the way and losing your individuality. So it can mean surrender, a kind of surrender, acceptance that my body is ending. And that, um, uh, also from the Buddhist tradition, it uh, can mean a larger awareness of impermanence. Um, everything is impermanent. Uh, it can mean a complete dissolution in the ground of all being. That's what Aldous Huxley called transformation. Uh, I think there's several stages you have to go through before you get to go into the ground of all being. Um, but he wrote about it very uh, compellingly in um, the perennial philosophy. And one of my favorites, Richard Bach, who wrote Jonathan Livingston Seagull, mm -hmm. um, had a version in his, uh, one of his books, what the caterpillar calls the end of the world the master calls a butterfly. What the caterpillar calls the end of the world, the master calls a butterfly. Transformation. Okay. One of the books that I really relied on, um, especially for this section, is a wonderful book called The Grace and Dying uh, by Kathleen Dowling Singh. And um, she worked with hospice uh, people in Florida for decades and talked about that last last few moments. Sometimes people move into um, their death with more acceptance early on, but a lot of times it only happens in the last few minutes. You just, you accept what's happening. And a transformation happens because you realize that you're just losing your body. You're moving on, but you're, just, you're ready to lose your body. And holding on to that body for most of us is, um, very uh, strong and hard to let go of. Um, at the end of the wave in the drop, I have an epilogue, and it begins with a Yiddish tale, which I just love. When the world was still young, Truth walked around as naked as she was the day she was born. Whenever she came close to a village, people closed their doors and shut their windows, for everyone was afraid to face the naked truth. <laughs> Understandably, Truth felt very alone and lonesome. One day, she encountered Story, who was surrounded by a flock of people of all ages and followed her everywhere she went. Truth asked her, Why is it that so many people love you but shy away from me? Story, who was dressed in beautiful robes, advised Truth, People love colorful clothes. I will lend you some of my robes, and you will see that people will love you too. Truth followed her advice and dressed herself in the colorful robes of story. It is said from this day on, truth and story always walk together, and that people love both of them. So, what, is the, uh, what if the acceptance of our death is the final stage of our maturation as spiritual beings? The acceptance of letting go of the body? That's a question that I've been pondering. And what if fear of death is the final spiritual test? 
Maybe uh, if we can accept uh, our own death, as the wisdom tradition suggests, then we get to graduate with honors from mm -hmm. this lifetime. I don't think, this is my conclusion, I don't think that any of the stories uh, captures the whole message, um, that uh, each one is a piece of the elephant. How many people know the story, the Hindu-Buddhist story, piece of the elephant? Most everybody does, right? Uh, so I won't repeat it now. Um, piece of the elephant means you describe the piece you have, but it's very different than some other piece that someone else is describing. But it's the elephant. It's the whole elephant. It's just that people can't see the whole elephant. What I did at the end of um, uh, the book is to take the single line from each of the stories and put them together. And this is what it sounds like. You are a drop returning to the embrace of Mother Ocean. Welcome to the beloved community. You are leaving the world of suffering. Welcome to the divine light. You are returning to the center of the circle. The pain of separation is over. You are dissolving into the ground of all being. Those are the principal messages. So I'd like to close with this. If this talk, or possibly reading my book, The Wave and the Drop, brings you closer to considering your own mortality, as I had to do, and considering the possibility of an afterlife, and I had to grapple with my, with my beliefs on that, um, then I think that um, the book has fulfilled its purpose. And maybe this talk, that's all you need is this talk. Just start thinking about some of the questions that I've raised. And I'll end with my with my own conclusion. I do believe that death is a transition and there are so many more dimensions than we know of. Thank you. Okay, questions. It's a heavy topic. Yes, Cass. Um, in working on this book and studying the different traditions and learning what the different conceptions are, did anything kind of about change about your conception of death? Or what you started out with? Um, anything that stands out? I'm sure there were lots of changes, but anything Well, that I'll tell you the truth about one thing that's happened, because I'm writing another book now, um, which is an extension of that. Um, I thought... Uh, with, good, with good reason that um, somewhere in the traditions by putting them all together um, I had not found one for me that I could call a home and I, I think it's fine when people do I think it's wonderful when you really dig into one, one particular tradition but uh, for me I tried Taoism, I tried Buddhism, I uh, looked at Sufism, I mean I, I really explored all of it and um, I didn't find a home for me for 30 years until I discovered the spirituality of nature. And that's uh, what got me involved in uh, ecology, local ecology, and I was able to expand on that. It's all connected. Um, there's a spirit world uh, operative here. And I mean, it, it just had a lot of the parts that I needed. So when I wrote the book, I thought, well, I have my own you know, uh, spiritual path through nature. But again, I was doing this as a kind of Aesop's fables for other people because I saw how useful it could be for a person to have a story on the way out. 
and, um, and I want to add something to that and help me remember. Um, but I also uh, found that, um, that none of the traditions even added up to a whole story, that there was so much more uh, beyond uh, to look at beyond, not to stay in the traditions, certainly to appreciate what we have from them, but to see, to explore beyond the traditions. Um, and that's what I'm doing now. Uh, and I have to tell you that one of the things that came up toward the end of my work on this book was um, the notion that uh, when you cross over, the, uh, you get what you expect. If you expect heaven, if you expect Jesus, if you expect Buddha, if you expect um, Muhammad, if you expect a wonderful earth-like setting with butterflies and, and great and flowers, that's what you're going to get. And a lot of the people who speak of their uh, near-death experience say, yeah, it's exactly what I thought it was going to be. It's just wonderful. Okay. Well, there's a reason for that, because we carry those mental constructs with us across the bridge. All right? and, and that's to give us some comfort. I'm repeating this now from stories that I've read. That's to give us some comfort with the familiarity of all of that. It's not something totally different. Um, no one, not a single person in a near-death experience said, all I did was sit at the foot of some guy sitting in a big chair and there were angels and harps all over the place. <laughs> Nobody saw that <laughs> So, But if you hold that version, maybe that's what you do see. But I think it's very interesting um, that the near-death experience people talk about it, people who, are in, who talk to their loved ones through mediums, um, get those descriptions. Oh, it's just wonderful here. So I can't tell you the music, the colors, everything. It's so wonderful here. So um, maybe the story is at least worth that kind of uh, effort. You know, it's it's what you're going to get on the other side. So have a great story. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, that's very relevant for me. Um, of the people that they talked to with near-death experiences, did any of them talk about believing that there was nothing afterward? And if so, what did they experience? Um, there were people who talked about negative experiences, okay? Um, seeing uh, loved ones in dire straits. No, no one talks about fate black, uh, nothing. I mean, of course. When they did just recently, and I quoted in my book, um, 2011, 2012, huge study of near death uh, of people who died uh, in accidents in on the surgery table and come back. Okay, only 10% of those had this kind of story. So maybe the 90% had the fate to black. I don't know. But they were also in trauma. They were also on drugs. They were also badly injured sometimes, and you know all of that. So. Who knows? But of the 10% of the near-death experience stories, um, they all had some kind of story. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, Dr. Sidney. Oh, that was great. Um, so I've, I've been hearing negative things now about cremation. Now I want to go to the ecological side. Ah. So cremation versus being buried in the ground. Or yeah. I know there's a place in Marin that does that just switch in a shroud and they bury it in the ground. What are your thoughts? Well, um, I speak about it. I speak about burial choices um, in one of the sections. I think it's in the Native American section. And um, 
there are these green cemeteries now, you know, Fernwood here in uh, Marin, uh, where my, one of my friends was buried. Um, I don't have any objection. I have my form all filled out. I am prepaid. <laughs> so no matter where in the world I die, they're supposed to bring me back here and cremate me, okay? Um, given the uh, how much we're taxing the land, I think that's an argument about, you know, we're running out of space to have cemeteries. Um, I don't think there's anything morally wrong with it, if that's what you're asking me. Um, and it doesn't affect... Uh, apparently, um, what happens to you on the other side? No. <laughs> okay. Not that I know of. Okay. You know, there's some, and I have to say this, there's some uh, certainly controversy about suicide, and that, that starts you off on a bad foot on the other side. Um, but then others say, no, we have, we have the right to end our lives, and we have the right to decide my purpose here is over. And uh, in the chapter that I write, I take that position. Thank you, Cindy. Uh, I'm curious about the surgeon who wrote the book about lifetime for death. And wasn't he a major skeptic and, and uh, atheist? That's how he describes himself. Yeah, um, yeah. His name is Evan Alexander. He's written several more books since then. Uh, he's a major speaker on the near-death um, circuit, speaking circuit. He comes to San Francisco uh, occasionally. Um, his story is so powerful. Um, and it is about uh, having some kind of meningitis um, that they couldn't fit, you know, they couldn't get him back, they couldn't get him back. He uh, was in a coma for uh, several weeks. The, the doctor in charge said, I think you should pull the plug. His wife was there, and, you know, we're just keeping him uh, basically alive. Uh, barely, he's going to be a vegetable. Uh, he's been gone so long. And she said, no, no, no. And slowly but surely, um, he came back. He couldn't talk when he came back. He was so disabled. He couldn't walk. He had to go back to uh, rehab and go through all kinds of processes. And several years later, the man writes a best-selling book, and he's up and about and talking about it. And he has all the documentation. I think it was um, UMass Hospital, one of the big Boston hospitals, and so they got all the documentation. This man was a vegetable for weeks, and now he's out there talking about it. So... It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you very much. That was very interesting. I just wanted to ask, considering the, the breadth of, of what you've read, I'm wondering, I've heard that some or several spiritual faiths sort of subscribe to the notion that it takes a certain amount of time for the body to migrate out. Do you find any consistency? Oh, great, great that? question. Yeah, that's a whole, certainly a book in itself, a talk in itself. Um, yes. Um, and I'll just tell you what I believe from what I've read, um, that the spirit stays around when the body um, ends and often attends the memorial service. There's many, many stories. I mean, why would you miss something like that? <laughs> <laughs> Your friends are saying, what a great person you were, and uh, doing you know, these wonderful things and saying these wonderful things. In fact, the story goes on, in many cases, they don't want to leave. Okay. Why should I? This is so wonderful. I've never been so loved in my whole life. Why should I leave from here? And um, and you get it that you can't hang around. And um, well, some people do. We call them ghosts. Uh, we call them apparitions. Um, my friend Roy can tell you more about that that direction than I can. But I uh, um, have. Uh, uh, so the sense is that some souls 
stick around here and they don't leave and they don't move on and they get stuck. And then there's, you know, retrievals, first responders on the other side <laughs> that uh, come and get them and, uh, and coax them on and say, you know, you're really dead. Um, and, and that becomes a spiritual practice for people. I know people on this side who do that kind of sp first responder work. And um, because the, the uh, dead people um, respond better to people that they see as alive on earth, right? If you're alive, then I must still be alive, and that's what they want to think. And what the, the first responder has to do is to gently, carefully say, remember what happened? Yeah, I was in a shipwreck, or I was on a battlefield, and I felt all these bullets going in me, you know. Well, you know what happened? You actually died, and you've just been sticking around. But you know what? There's all of these people that are waiting for you, all these wonderful people that love you, your family, your ancestors. They're waiting for you to come and join them. That's, I'm, I understand, the dialogue that goes on mm -hmm. and that invites people to leave this kind of stuck place and and. and uh, Excuse me, did you say that there are people who are doing first responder work yeah. here? Like, how, how does that work? <laughs> you have to get trained for it. First of all, you have to be able to do something called out-of-body. Okay. Uh, out-of-body experience, which is to be able to move your consciousness outside your body. And many people can do that. If you're interested in that, and I'm particularly interested in that, but uh, uh, Bob Monroe, Robert Monroe, wrote three books uh, called Journeys Out of the Body, and different decades. The Monroe Institute um, teaches how to do out-of-body, uh, but you have to be able to move your consciousness. You can't stay in your body and be a, real, a first responder. You have to be able to actually move to where uh, the person who's stuck in a kind of limbo, it really reminds you of the descriptions of limbo, where they don't want to leave here um, and um, they, uh, they need some help, but oftentimes they can be helped to move on. So Bob Monroe is a good source for that. Yeah, thank you. It's wonderful to hear people speak frankly about what might be happening. I, I think we are um, almost we're unconsciously blighted to how powerful is the materialistic there is nothing beyond this model. Um, and um, I just read this remarkable book about how to change your mind about uh, the impact of psychedelics on people who are facing death, and written by a guy who was an utter materialist. And then he took it, and um, he was, he's quite shaken by his experience of what emerged from within him um, about the nature of reality. Um, and stuff. I, I was raised with a family that was very clear about the reunion part of oh, dying, oh, and, and nice. then you know, people are waiting and do not tarry. And, nice. um, and I actually, I cannot comprehend how people live, given the grief involved in loss, even with faith, um, who, who have none of that. How, how do you deal with the grief of the people you love dying with the idea that there's never, 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 I, I, I can't do it. No, neither can I. And um, but you know, I mean, 
It, it, is, it is a little vague, and we're told, I mean, they always say uh, at the services, right, we'll see you in heaven, and we'll be together again mm -hmm. in heaven, but, you know, is that just homily, or is that, you know, for real? And what all of the people from the other side who are communicating with us say is, yeah, it's real, we're waiting for you. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, but you raise an important point. Do we have another minute? Uh, yeah, a couple minutes. Um, which is that why do we come into this lifetime, uh, let's say uh, this lifetime, and, uh, and decide to have amnesia? That we forget about all that stuff. We forget about the fact that we came from a greater reality. We forget about all the other lifetimes we've, we've had or are having concurrently, depending on what you read. Um, and, uh, uh, and why do we do that? I mean, if we, why wouldn't we know? Well, the answer is you might want to, you know, if things get bad here, you might want to, you know, take off, you know, and say, why, why should I put up with this horrible life? Why should I, you know, I made so many mistakes or things are going horribly, and so I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back home. We choose to have amnesia so that we can fulfill our purpose here, and there's a value to seeing this is the whole thing right now. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. This is my service, This, however you put it. This is my work here. My purpose is, and it may be just to, you know, just to use this lifetime to improve upon, you know, lifetimes are supposed to be parts of a larger whole that we have many lifetimes, and so there's a larger entity. So, you know, I'm working on, I'm working on this for the team, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm doing my part. So, you know, and that's been said by the near-death experience people, too. They didn't want to come back. Many, many said, I don't want to go back there when I can hang out here. You know, and they will say, no, 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 you've got to complete your work. So mm -hmm. there's a choice about you know, being forgetful about that. Thank you. Last question? I'll be quick. When I think about the returning, and that it almost feels like there's a finite number of beings then that are circulating through the afterlife back on earth mm. and I don't know if you've ever encountered that philosophy or not but I always think when people talk about oh everybody has a past life which means that everybody on earth is just constantly recycling around that, that it connotes that there's a finite number of beings out there that are circulating. I mean, to me, I always approach it more as phenomena, that matter changes, and, you know, and there's not some, I don't really separate self from body, you know, necessarily. So, that's, I just, it's a, but I don't know if you've ever encountered that idea of being like a collection of beings in the universe that's cycling through, that's not added or subtracted. Does that ever come up in any of your research at all? I, I can only answer, I mean, there's so many answers out there, but the yeah. answer that I um, have right now is that uh, there are many, many, many beings circulating through Earth because Earth is a wonderful moral gymnasium. This is a place where people come to really learn and uh, deepen their values um, of compassion, of love, of generosity, of gratitude, because it's so tough here. Mm -hmm. Okay, you can hang out Lottie Don, those other places, right? But they come here because it's a gymnasium, and I love that term, gymnasium. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, don't, I have no idea how many. Uh, I do know, um, and this is what I believe, that people graduate from Earth, that you're, you know, and it may be because of the karma story that mm -hmm. the Buddhists tell or some other thing that, 
You know, like, for instance, um, I, I'll leave you with this thought. Uh, I've been a vegetarian for almost 50 years. Um, I, um, I don't want to come back to a planet that eats other beings. <laughs> Okay. So I have put in my next image. I want to go to a vegetarian planet. I'll leave you with that. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, next week our speaker will be uh, Laura Burgess, a lay entrusted Buddhist teacher in the Soto Zen tradition who lectures and leads retreats at different practice centers in Northern California. She's an abiding teacher at the Lennox House Meditation Group in Oakland. Um, and uh, Charlie Garfield will be here in December, I believe, as uh, one of our speakers. Um, Donna is the poly word for giving, and um, we will, uh, our host will be uh, circulating with a bowl um, in which we can contribute uh, whatever feels right. Uh, $10 is a suggestion, but um, whatever you want to give to help us meet the expenses of uh, renting this place, um, speaker fees, um, and our uh, Larkin Street lunch, our newsletter, etc., etc., etc. So, do we have a host? Yes, we did. <laughs> Could you say a few things? <laughs> so I'm the host, and I'm Mike, and uh, yes, there are some, uh, as I said, said previously, mostly helpful um, <laughs> kind of um, lunches, so to speak. There are also a couple unhelpful. Hey. Um, there are also books, The Wave and the Drop, which are available at the discounted price of $10. And so if you'd like to have one, or if you think you know somebody that for whom the book would really fit, the book's not a fit for everybody, um, but it, uh, but you may know people for whom it is exactly the right fit. So please consider that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, do we have any other announcements? Yes, Richard. Yes, uh, GBS annual retreat is September 28th and 30th. There's still a few spots left, so if you're interested, uh, you can talk to Jerry or I. <coughs> Secondly, uh, Community Thrift, we have an account that has <coughs> picked up a check, ching ching, for over uh, $300. Mm -hmm. That's a quarterly check, so it's a great way to support the saga if you have something mm -hmm. no longer serves you. You want to cast it on the Okay, so can we gather for a dedication of merits? And we'll have a social hour, social half hour. So please reach out maybe to the people who've just come back and meet people. By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness that is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month, and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast 
like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.